that exist, I will hit the record button again. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I'm not used to dealing with um, top-tier professional oh, yeah, video yeah. folks as my guests on the podcast. So I just don't want, you know, people have such little time and they have so many choices. I don't want superfluous conversation to distract them you know, <laughs> when they can quickly jump to something more interesting. You know? <laughs> but I think Gregory Wint fiddling on his cell phone is probably one of the more interesting things on the, on the internet right now. Maybe in Carbondale. <laughs> Oh my! How, like, so I mean, we'll we'll just talk, I guess, right right off the bat. The the big thing that you've got dropping out that we'll preview later in the in the show. Um, I mean, did was was the was the COVID documentary something where like you like somebody brought you this project and you're like, ah, I got to go do it. Was it a collaboration with a couple other folks? Was it solely on your shoulders? Like, how did it all come to be? Okay, so the way I heard about the subject of the documentary called Going Viral, SIU's Response to the Coronavirus Pandemic, which premiered last night on WSIU-TV, that was December 10th, and the way I heard about it was actually from an article that Tim Crosby wrote that goes out to most of the SIU community. Mm -hmm. So he wrote this article that the lab in microbiology in coordination with plant biology, was producing a substance called viral transport medium. And that is the substance that when you get the swab up your nose for COVID, mm -hmm. that swab immediately has to go into a vial of a, a very specific solution that will preserve whatever was in your nose. Mm -hmm. They cap that up, and they send that to the lab for testing. And in the beginning of the pandemic, Illinois had maybe 500 literally tubes of this stuff because it's just not a commonly used substance. Uh -huh. So the governor put out a message to universities saying, do you have this stuff on hand? If you don't have it, can you make it? And several people from the uh, School of Biological Sciences said, hey, I think we can do this. I have this, I have this, I have this, and I can get some of this. Let's give it a try. So I read the article about that in very early April, and I just immediately ran over to the lab of Scott Hamilton Bream, who was the project lead on this. Mm -hmm. I had, uh, he had been in a video I'd done a couple of years ago, so mm -hmm. I vaguely knew him, and I said, hey, this, this has to be documented, right? We, we, should, we should cover what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And he was like, totally all for it, you know? And I just jumped in. I, I ran over with the camera and just started filming immediately. And he was so enthusiastic, he just started talking to the camera and bringing me around everywhere. I wasn't even fully technically prepared. I didn't have my <laughs> better camera. I didn't have a, an external mic. I just thought I was kind of running over there to find out if we could do it. Mm -hmm. And turns out that I wound up using a lot of that footage because it just, just worked. So uh, we just had to go through a few permissions, and I had to wear a mask and follow safety protocols and not contaminate what they were doing. They're working mm -hmm. with, you know, highly... Uh, uh, substances that could be easily contaminated. So they're following very strict protocols. Yeah. So then I just started going over there a few times a week and documenting and documenting. And it was really of my own volition. I, 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 it's part of my job at SIU to make videos of educational nature, sometimes promotional nature, mm -hmm. um, doing a lot of videos for professors now that we've had to put things online. Uh, so I just said, this has to be done. Yeah. And I took it on and we can talk more about the details of that. 
Absolutely. And, uh, you know, part of that is why this has to be done. Uh, episode 33 of the WTF Carbondale podcast, where we talk to interesting people about their interesting lives and tie it all together with this little old place we call home, Carbondale, Illinois. And I am absolutely thrilled. Uh, you know, always enjoy having folks that, that I have good personal relationships with uh, on the show, but even more exciting when they're like doing stuff that's consequential. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's his, his video work just always been part of your life. Like, is, is it, is it just inherent in who you are at this point? You've been doing it for, for X amount of years that it's like, whatever I may be engaging with, you know, whether it's personal, uh, you know, uh, recreational activity or something, you know, along the professional lines like this, it's just like the camera comes first for you. Yeah. The camera. I likened it, uh, I don't know when I came across this analogy, but the camera is kind of my sketchbook. Mm -hmm. I guess I would consider myself an artist at heart, but I'm not a good painter or drawer. So if I bring a sketchbook, I'm usually a little dissatisfied with the results, even though sometimes <laughs> it's a very peaceful, nice thing to do with no mm -hmm. technology. But uh, back in the early 80s, my dad was an amateur photographer. Mm -hmm. He's an insurance salesman and also an amateur photographer. So he's always taking pictures. In fact, we had a show of his work at the Long Branch Coffee House 10 years ago, I think, or 2010, 2011 of mm -hmm. his photographs because they're really kind of cheesy photos of insurance guys, you know, <laughs> who are like the cheesiest of cheesy, you know, characters. Uh -huh. So, but he would then, he saw that I had a bit of an interest in what he was doing with the cameras and he would give me the cameras that when he would upgrade, right? And he'd let me use the previous model. Mm -hmm. And I just started getting into it. And of course, that was the days of film. And uh, just started enjoying what came out, you know, experimenting and just having fun taking pictures. And then I also had to find a career path. And uh, I graduated high school in 1980. And, and this was on Long Island. I grew up on Long Island mm -hmm. and in New York City. And I really wanted to be a DJ, actually. So I wound up getting into a communications program at the New York Institute of Technology, started out trying to go into radio, eventually realized there's very little opportunity there, mm -hmm. uh, moved over to TV, and kind of liked it, but it was a little too, I don't know, didn't quite do it for me. Yeah. Finally, I moved over to the film area, and that's when I really found what I wanted to do was to, to make films, and uh, narrative films, experimental films, and that became the thing for me. And ever since then, you know, I usually have a camera with me, and now it's so convenient with the phone. So I'm always filming something, and I may or may not use it. But like I said, it's my <laughs> sketchbook. So mm -hmm. it's just something that I may take a whole bunch of pictures or shoot a bunch of video and maybe never even look at it again. But mm -hmm. something, uh, the act of doing it is just uh, very enjoyable to me. And, and then sometimes something really good comes out of it. Is is. What has been, I mean, the shift, because you've, you've really gotten to operate at, at, a, at a really sweet moment in the evolution of media creation and documentation. I mean, have, has storage always been kind of your, uh, just something that you've been keen to, right? Whether it's film or digital or, or what have you, that you're, you're big on just having your media, having it organized, just having it referenceable, even if you never look at it? Or no, I'm terrible organizer. I'm, <laughs> I'm, it's unfortunate because uh, I do archive a lot of things, but I'm bad at organization, uh -huh. and I could really use an assistant for that, and I've never really had one. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was certainly 
much easier with film. You had your film prints and you had your negatives and they might fit in a couple of boxes. And now things are scattered over 30 hard drives or whatever, <laughs> you know, different computers and different offices. Uh -huh. And so that, that part's really difficult. Um, Tough. So each, each um, era of media has its own challenges. When I was starting in, in film, you know, after college, my undergrad college, I immediately started in the film industry mm -hmm. as a camera production assistant. And you had to load film either in a black bag that you couldn't see what you were doing. You had to load it into the canister mm -hmm. that goes mounted on the camera. And you have to do it precisely, perfectly, without um, any light getting in there. Mm -hmm. You either do it in this bag if you're on location, or you might have a little dark room. Very, very intense, high-pressure job. If you mess that up, you're immediately fired. They want to yeah. kill you because... Imagine you're filming a scene and the, the film has been exposed and ruined before they even, you know, they take that out, they develop it, and there's nothing there. Mm -hmm. That could cost hundreds of thousands of dollars of yeah. what it costs to shoot that day. So very, very high pressure. <laughs> and now with digital, you just keep rolling. It doesn't matter. It's just, you know, unlimited amount of data. You're, mm -hmm. uh, but that's the challenge there is, like, now you've got all this media to have to sort through. The difference between having to be able to go back to it or having too much of it to go through in the end of it all yes huh, yeah. that's interesting um do you so did did film and and video work bring you to carbondale or like what brought you here well that's an interesting story so how i wound up in carbondale really has almost nothing to do with film and <laughs> and my my career although a little bit so you may or may not know that 25 years ago in August, uh, a group of eight people came uh, from, well, seven from New York and one from Colorado uh -huh. to begin what became the Sufi community here uh -huh. in Carbondale. So I was one of those people. I left New York with the other group. We all moved here, mm -hmm. uh, all New Yorkers, and then, like I said, one person from Colorado. And we came here to start an intentional spiritual community. Mm -hmm. And the reason Carbondale was because the spiritual teacher and his wife had roots here. They had yeah. gone to, to SIU. They had connections, excuse me, with some land in Anna where we have uh, an organic farm. Uh, so that was what brought me here. Serendipitously, uh, we, once we got here or when we knew we were moving here, uh -huh. everyone knew they had to kind of find a job of some sort, right? So... We, the first place, obviously, to look was SIU, right? That's mm -hmm. the biggest employer. So some of us went over there, and I went, somehow got routed over to the TV department. Mm -hmm. And I had a bachelor's degree. I was already working in the industry seven years. And I had never even heard of a graduate assistantship. But someone said, hey, you know, we have this GA program. You get uh you do like 20 hours of work teaching assistant we pay for your tuition and you get a stipend mm -hmm. and i'm like wow that <laughs> sounds like a deal i never really thought of going back to school uh -huh. but this was in april of 1995 so i immediately applied it was like right at the border of getting all the materials in by june i was told i was accepted i got the position and then we moved here in August, the day before my G GA training began. Oh, that was phenomenal. So, yeah. So, August 13th, 1995, we land here. August 14th, I start GA training. And then I got my master's degree in telecommunications at SIU. And that was really when the very early days of going from analog to digital. Mm -hmm. We were still uh, editing from videotape to videotape. Um, you know, you copy one little clip at a time. 
from this videotape to the next videotape. That's how it was done until you complete your whole piece. Mm -hmm. And if you made a mistake along the way, uh, unless you had a very high-end system, you can't fix it. You have to, you have to keep building it. So mm -hmm. at SIU, I started to learn what's called nonlinear editing or digital editing. And then a little bit later, as I was kind of finishing up there, Apple came out with Firewire and mini DV tapes, and that was the beginning of a consumer taking their camcorder with their mini DV tape, plugging it with one cable into their computer, and that is now a digital copy that is exactly looking as good as the tape. So that was the beginning of digital in video, and I learned that at SIU, did my master's thesis all on a nonlinear system. And of course, that's how it all is now. It's just you know, gotten much more robust. And we're at an era now where um, most feature films are not even shot on film anymore. It took a long, long time for mm -hmm. that transition. But in the last five to 10 years, that is now digital, you know, going on to invisible media on some kind of card, right? So that's, um, that it's was, so, yeah. So I was, I came here for originally a spiritual reason. Uh, I'm no longer with the Sufi community, but I'm friendly with them. And uh, but that's what got me from from New York to Carbondale. There was a spiritual epiphany. It, it changed my life. I was seeking something greater to be part of. Mm -hmm. I was actually doing well in New York. My career was going better than it ever had been at, uh, right at that time. Yeah. And I just I just was ready to drop it. I just said, "This is what I'm doing." And uh, it's it's cool. I mean, I just I feel like Carbondale overall is still no no matter like what direction people so choose to go that they can feel part of something bigger simply by being like here it's just that kind of place where you can have access to feel like you're part of something bigger even in a very small place right there's a lot of room to do things and you know later on i would um i met what who would become my now ex-wife through the community <laughs> and uh we have three gorgeous daughters. We were able to purchase a home in the historic district. People in New York can't even believe, like, you know, I bought a house for $85,000, yeah. you know, and they just, it's just unfathomable to them. Like, you can <laughs> buy a home, like, <laughs> that's what they pay in taxes for like three years, you know, like, um, <laughs> so it's it's a great place to, to raise a family and uh, and have a quality of life. The, the natural surroundings are incredible you know i think the town itself uh used, could use a lot of improvement physically mm -hmm. unfortunately a lot of divestment has happened yeah. but people like you are helping revitalize it the space we're in right now is a centerpiece and hopefully it can continue to work <laughs> and uh so it's uh i'm still a new yorker at heart there's yeah. still things i don't get about the midwest <laughs> you know this is it's uh Sometimes people don't get me. I, even just because I'm a little sharp, people think I'm rude. And uh, in New York, we're just used to dissing each other. It was like a way of life. You just make fun of each other. No one like takes it that personally. Here, you say one slightly like strong thing, and people are like, oh, that guy's a jerk. You know? <laughs> it's that Midwest nice, man. I'm telling yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I, I love because like so you know I've, I've known I've known Will Lowe for you know well over fifteen years at, at this point and we're um, you know the the even having moved here as you know a relatively young person you know nine ten years old that like that's still doesn't matter he's a New Yorker right like he'll always be 
a New Yorker, even though that was just, you know, at now just a third or less of his life. Right. But like that identity is the thing that carries through. <laughs> yeah, you can't. Uh, I joke, as soon as I get into New York airspace when I'm flying to visit my family, then I start getting an attitude. I'm like, land this fucking plane, will you? <laughs> I'm trying to go down. Right. I, got, I, got, I got no more sympathy for this air around me. Right. I didn't say we could circle. <laughs> so, okay, so here's a really silly offbeat question about that. Because, like, I... Like, how is Seinfeld just supposed to be like a very, very, very watered down, like safe, approachable, uh, like representation of the New York existence? Then is that like part of it? Is this this thing that Jerry Seinfeld does is just this this sharp observation? But really, all that is is being a New Yorker, only like with the edges smoothed out. <laughs> like, I don't know if that's entirely how I describe it, but perhaps. I mean, there's so many New York characters, and he certainly fits in. I mean, everything, of course, is a bit exaggerated, mm -hmm. but um, the kind of situations people get into, the characters you deal with, um, it's it's kind of like the feel-good New York, yeah. kind of cozy, uh, sort of Jewish. There's, you know, there's a lot of Jewish culture in New mm -hmm. York, and it's uh, it's it's one aspect of many, many. But it's it's you know, it's got its real feeling. You know? <laughs> and yeah, sure, it's smoothed out. Not everyone's quite as funny or as... And, and nice. They don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, maybe, maybe that's the word. But the um, things that happen, like one episode reminds... It, I think of when he's, he's gone a date with a massage therapist and, he, and, he, and he's like, you know, my, my shoulder's really sore. And he just cannot get this woman to even like put a hand on him, mm -hmm. you know, even though she's a masseuse. <laughs> and he's on a date with a masseuse. He's like, oh, you know... And she just completely ignores him. I mean, these kind of just things happen, you know. Like, you know, you you think you're with somebody who's a certain thing, and they're in their own trip, you know. <laughs> well, and I imagine that just when you're when you're bombarded by so much all at once, you just eventually tune it all out and become your own <laughs> path, I guess. I don't if that's part of it. I, I I'm not a. I've only been to New York once in my life. I can't sit here and like make any claim to understanding. But if you were to observe it from afar and be like, okay, it would make sense that if you're just hit with messaging and sound and lights and smells all day long, that you just eventually shut it all out. When you want to be you, you're going to be you. And if somebody wants you to be something else, ah, fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit of everything. I can't even. Uh, the place has changed so much now. It looks like a war zone every time I go because they're putting up buildings and taking them down as fast as you can, you know, whatever. It's 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 a whole new place now, but it's its own place. It's a great place to visit. Uh, I'm glad I grew up there. I don't think I'd want to live there again. It's just too much, yeah. too much, too much all the time, you know. So. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. Um, no, so you were, you were talking about kind of your, your early days in, um, you know, the, the film industry and kind of like what you would do run and film and like that's 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 wild to me that such a important job right is like in the entry level position right is the break in well actually that's not so okay all right if fair. we go back to um when i was talking about loading film uh-huh that was the job of the actual union second assistant camera person so my job was assisting her and helping out and she would give me more responsibility uh for instance as we went along and I learned things, she started allowing me to do the slate, as uh -huh. they call this. So I could go up there and say, scene 12, take one, 
and then quickly get out of the frame. <laughs> so they would not let me load the film. I had to. That I wouldn't want to, and it's uh, it's a job that you really need to be union certified. Well, not necessarily union certified, but you need to really know how to do it. Yeah, and the yeah. camera department has to trust you. Um, so, uh, but we can talk about that film because it's a really funny story if you want to yeah. run a clip. So I was very fortunate. My first, very first job out of undergrad was as a camera uh, production assistant on a film called Rocket Gibraltar. And it starred Burt Lancaster in his very last film starred Macaulay Culkin before he did Home Alone, early film of oh, Kevin wow. Spacey, Bill Pullman, and many other up-and-coming or, or mainstream actors that you'd, you'd see. Danny mm -hmm. Glover, uh, for instance. Uh, so um, we can uh, run that clip from yep. the movie. Yep. It was shot in the Hamptons in 1987. And it, it, you know, it was a pretty modest film. It didn't do a big thing in the box office, but we can take a look at it and see... Do you want me to, um, when we when we pull it up, do you want me to just bring the slider down if you want to say something and just leave the video kind of running as you talk over? Sure. Or what would your preference sure. be there? Like, uh, yeah, go ahead and play a bit of it, and then I'll give you a cue. Sounds good. Looks like it might have gone to the beginning again. And we were looking to be at seven minutes in, right? right. Give or take. Okay. That I can do. Yeah, that's 10. Back it up, back it up. That's about fine right there. Killer, let me drive from the head station. Well, let me die. Besides, come on up. Yeah, come on up. Go ahead, go ahead. Where's Rollo? In the van on the phone. Hello, Doc. <laughs> I see Let's freeze it there a minute. Okay. So this is Burt Lancaster. Up. Oh. No, no, I'm, I'm bringing screen. it down so we can see you. And, or do you want me to keep that video up? Yeah, keep up, that sorry. on the screen for a bit. Haha, right. uh -huh, just kidding. Okay. Uh -oh. Yeah. So oh, there now, now, I've, now yeah. I've learned my limitations. That's all right. Yeah. Yeah, run back through that yeah. one more time. Right about there. Very good. So there's Burt Lancaster sitting down in the yard. And as you can see, the camera is facing him. So there's a big camera crew sitting there. Mm -hmm. So this is my little story. And... There he is, and my job is to do this slate that I pulled up a little while ago. Mm -hmm. And I guess, yeah, why don't we minimize that a bit? There okay, we go. so my job is simply to go in f right in front of Bert because you put the slate right in front of the, what the camera's pointing at. Uh -huh. So here I am, very nervous, young man, like just been <laughs> being given this responsibility to do the slate. Uh -huh. And you have to read it right, and you have to put it exactly where they want it, and then you have to do it quick and get out of the scene. Now, on these slates, in order to, like, say, quickly change what take we're up to, we had a dry erase marker, and I'd, we'd tape the dry erase marker to the back of the slate. So you can quickly change the take number, and that's a terrible two, so I'm going to make it a three, and then put, this, <laughs> put the marker back in the back of the slate. So here I am in front of Burt Lancaster. I'm like, okay, this is scene 12, take three, mark, and then pull the slate out. But... In that case, the marker slipped out of the slate and dropped right into Bert's lap. <laughs> and I'm standing there like this, and the crew is there staring at me, the director, the cameraman, looking, and I'm thinking, they want to kill me right now. <laughs> and, and, and there's this, just this frozen moment, at least in my mind. Yeah. And then Bert Lancaster just picks up the marker. He says, here you go, kid. Don't worry about it. 
and I just grab it and get out of the scene quick. <laughs> and uh, so I was really famous at that time. And look at me now. I'm in Carbondale. What happened? <laughs> I was dropping markers into Burt Lancaster's lap. I was chatting with Kevin Spacey and Danny Glover. And like, and now uh, here you John, are with me. John Glover. Now I'm here with Nathan Colombo. <laughs> Sucker. I, this is a this is my <laughs> career in the film industry. Just it's skyrocketing downhill oh. really fast. <laughs> so, so are we are we good on that clip? Was there anything else that we were going to look at on that? I think that's that one? okay from that. Unless you want to show any of the people, the, any of the cast in there, you could. Uh, but anyway, you can look up the movie. It's uh, I'll I'll just pull up the cover. It's Rocket Gibraltar, Burt Lancaster's last film, uh, Macaulay Culkin. Uh, before he did Home Alone. Is that like Macaulay Culkin? That's him right there. Oh, wow, He's okay. one of the grandsons. And it's a charming little film, not perfect at all. But uh, in fact, the original director, the guy who wrote the film, got fired within the first week. So I'm there helping out, you know, just jumping in, learning the film business. And then suddenly I'm hearing, they just fired the director. I'm like, how do you fire the director? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, he was not used to directing this. This was a fairly big film. It was like a yeah. $3 million budget at the time. But uh, he was, I think it was like the makeup guy was like, why did he get fired? Well, we're a week into production. We're three days behind schedule. I'm like, oh. So then they brought in a more veteran uh, director. Yeah. Uh, but he still got the writing credit because he wrote the movie. A guy, um, Amos Poe, wrote it. Dan Petrie directed it. Um, and uh, Yost Vacano, who... Uh, th that's what got my training really underway because the cameraman, Joost Vacano, he had shot Dust Boat, the German U-boat film. Mm -hmm. He had just shot Robocop. He had done, he had, he, I think he would later do Total Recall. Big, big, big cinematographer. Is that what you like about, is that what you like about Sam so much as the Robocop joke? Is that what? No, I, you know, that's the one joke I didn't appreciate as that's much. That's fair. Like, that's fair. But yeah. But, uh, <laughs> so I got crack German training, you know, right from the start. And that's what really enabled me to, um, you know, make my way in the film industry for some years until until I I downwardly mobiled myself to Carbondale. And, but I'm happy here, you know. It's a, it's a difficult, difficult industry. And um, the next level after, so you go from camera production assistant, then second assistant camera where you're mm -hmm. loading the film and stuff. And then when you're the first assistant camera, you're you're focusing for the camera operator. Mm -hmm. They don't focus. Like if there's a focus change, it's the assistant doing it. And you're doing it without looking through the lens. Mm -hmm. So you have to, I have to know that you're 22 feet away. And if you move to 15 feet, I have to move the, the dial to that marker. So it's Oof. very high stress. Yeah. And, and like that's just not my thing. And some people are really, really good at it. And I was okay, but... Uh, I'm more of a creative person, so I mm -hmm. want to direct, I want to shoot, and uh, the highly technical, that kind of stuff, ooh, it's tough. <laughs> well, that's, that's what so. I like about, you know, in, the, in this, I, you know, I've been, I've been I, have, I haven't done on probably about the last seven or eight podcasts, but talked about the Craterdale concept, right, is that, like, now you don't, you don't have to just have those kind of capable people to make good media happen, right, that anybody with a cell phone or a decent digital camera or whatever can like take that initial plunge, that initial step and make something that is rather decent consumable. Yeah. It, it, the tools now, like anyone can create, it's not the, the specialty it once was. In fact, if we want to transition to what I did a few years later. Yeah, absolutely. So 
do you want to talk about it and then I'll and then I'll bring it up here? Or do you yeah. want me to go ahead and bring we'll it up? We'll talk about it and then we can run probably make maybe run that whole video perhaps if if we don't think it's too obnoxious. Yeah. Um so one of the things I did before YouTube, uh some people may remember public access cable TV. Mm -hmm. So any city that had cable uh, would have to have a, a public access channel, meaning anyone in the community could put material on that. Mm -hmm. you'd, you'd have to adhere to whatever policies. But this was pre-YouTube, mm -hmm. before anyone can just p upload content. So I got involved with a group of activists that um, wanted to do a TV show. Actually, it was my idea to do it, and then a bunch of people were like, yes, let's do that. And <laughs> we started a, a, a show called Public Information Network TV. Uh -huh. Pin TV, we called it. That's and actually would, a really good name. Yeah, and we would do things like, imagine if the Black Lives Matter protests were happening in 1992. Uh -huh. That's what we've been would have been covering. In fact, so many protests um, you know, continue for many social issues. So the video I want to show is um, from 1992. Bill Clinton was president, and he had promised to lift the ban on gays in the military. Mm -hmm. Gay people were forbidden to be in the military. Uh, so, But instead of lifting the ban, he came up with the don't ask, don't tell, mm -hmm. right? So I guess, and that did not fly. That was like a half measure, right? That was yeah. a, a cop-out measure. So this video uh, covers a protest that happened shortly after that decision and this is right in New York City. And, and this was one of the last things I did on, on analog video. Mm -hmm. So this was shot on tape and edited on tape uh, all the way. And, um, but I still think it's like one of the best things I've ever done. It's really fun. I think it, tells, it has a great message. And I think people really enjoy it. That's phenomenal. So here's here's a, when, when I play this one, we'll we'll do kind of the same thing. If we get to a point where you want to talk, just you know, flag me down, and I'll pause it, I'll minimize it, we'll talk through it, and then I'll and then I'll resize it back up again. Okay, that sound I good. I think we'll let this one go through because it's. I think people really enjoy it. It's very topical. <laughs> Lives of lesbians and gays uh, in the military and all over the nation have been under the microscope all week. We've heard the most scurrilous charges levied against us in terms of being promiscuous, disease-carrying people, and I thought that the point of view from the lesbian and gay community had to come out. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Yeah, six months. And the fucking there now. And never right. mind your six months. Well, I would have liked to see President Clinton uh, simply uh, sign the executive order and move on to other issues like President Truman did when he issued an executive order against discrimination against uh, African Americans. Uh, I think the six-month delay means that uh, the right wing is going to be able to mount a, a big campaign. Uh, I don't think anything good can happen in the six months because there's going to be a lot of distortions, a lot of fear tactics out there. The ban on military, gays and lesbians in the military, must be 
ended right now. Discrimination is discrimination. There are no two ways about it. It's a simple matter of equity and justice. And this has nothing to do with military. The fact that gay and lesbian and bisexual people are being brought onto yeah, the front lines. I am here newspaper. because I think there should be gay and lesbian people who are here to say, I don't want to be part of the military. And I think it's horrible that we're being equated as people who support the military when we are the very people that have been most crippled by the military money that should have gone to health care and should have gone to education. And the fact that this country is under a military coup into this next regime is exactly what's hurting gay men and lesbian across the board. We are fucking sick of it. You get it? We're fucking sick of the homophobia, the sexism, the racism, patriarchy. We're sick that we're dying of breast cancer and nobody's doing a goddamn thing about it. You know, shut down the military, money goes to health care and housing.
the um that that queers are killers two poster is quite the fucking statement man <laughs> I wow i you know the the thing that blows me away about that piece of media is just how short memories may be in terms of who was on whose side when right like that's what 28 years ago now you said 92 yeah right you know it's it's not like cnn doesn't still exist in its way right it, it wasn't it wouldn't have just been fox news talking about uh you know anti gay and and lgbtq uh positions it would have been literally everybody willing to just push that forward and the difference between the world in which uh, like you documented and the world in which i get to live in are two very different things right now and i, I just yeah we need we need more people young a little just a little bit younger like myself to see more things like that that really show like this is where we're coming from and things in a lot of way, like I haven't watched this video in quite a while, but so much of this could still be said, yeah. which is so sad because the the right wing media has gotten so much more powerful. I don't even think Fox News existed then, or if it did, it wasn't anything like what it is today. Yeah, and um, you know the battles are still being fought. Thankfully, some legislation has has improved over the years, but still, I mean, it's just. And look what's going on right now today. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, the, the, the woman literally said, you know, democracy is a threat. Well, guess what, man? We literally are in the midst of like, you know, the, the most bimble bumble of a freaking coup. Right. That. Uh, and I think this was best said on NPR here a couple of uh, a day or two ago that, uh, you know, an author that was like, oh, this is your first time and is writing about uh, coups uh, for The New York Times, who like she's from Turkey. So this is of her hmm. person. Like she gets it. She's like, Oh, this is your first time. She's from a culture where there are seven or eight different words to describe a minority overthrow of the government through, you know, uh, violent and, and militaristic means. Right. And, and we're sitting here going, Oh, it's a coup. It's a coup. But we don't like, we don't have the right way to express like, nah, somebody's trying to exert, um, uh, you know, minority rule over a, a lost election and is finding every way within the system to do that as possible up to and leading till the point at which something, uh, you know, you, you know, until there's, there's a violent mechanism of the state utilized to reinforce that and whether or not, you know, the mechanism of the state actually rejects that or accepts that. We're going to find out pretty darn soon, right? Real soon. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> like a month and a week. We're getting there. <laughs> It's a very scary time, really. Uh, so I, I'm, I am, you know, I just I like being here because of its position. Like we're we're not on a coast, we're not, you know, we're we're connected to metro areas, but we are not our own metro area. You know, you you talked about the organic farm down in Anna. It's like it's things like this to where when resources become scarce and, you know, systems of political power truly localized because the networks of, of power that we've established at much larger levels have have, you know, degraded that like these are going to be the things that are important. Right. right. And like there's enough people here that like get that. Right. No matter what side of the political spectrum they're on. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully we can help each other, and it should be easier in a smaller town, and we're not a target of 
massive violence and disruptions such as big cities. So even the weather is great here. Even the climate, where, I mean, <laughs> unless we get one of these earthquakes that's predicted, we are in the sweet spot of climate within this climate change disaster that's yeah. happening, right? Like our, our, our summers will get a little bit hotter and we'll just have hotter summers. But like right now, well, we're having a 60 degree December and... Yeah, <laughs> we'll take it. God bless, man. Uh, it's so cool. It's so the um, it's not so cool. I'm just I'm thinking about other stuff. I'm trying to transition topics. Right. I'm thinking. Well, of- if we want to bring us to more of the present day and go yeah. back to the, um, so obviously we're in the time of COVID, uh, COVID nineteen, and will this? Do you think this segment will air before Sunday? Today's Friday. Uh, I mean, I, I had thought to either put it out this evening or tomorrow. Okay, so. great. So. Uh, for those of us in the listening area, WSIU-TV on Sunday night at 9.30 will be showing the documentary that I directed, um, Going Viral, Southern Illinois University's Response to the Coronavirus Pandemic. Mm-hmm. And a short synopsis, a group of faculty, staff, students, and volunteers created a vital uh, formula that's used in COVID testing. And the state of Illinois had very little of this in uh, early in the coronavirus. So from April to June of this year, the labs at SIU uh, cranked out 115,000 vials of VTM, which means that's 115,000 tests that they were able to um, provide the material for. So there's a half-hour documentary about this uh, premiering on Sunday, or it premiered on the 10th, but the second uh, screening is on Sunday, 9.30 WSIU-TV. And then we can queue up and let's uh, let's watch the first couple of minutes of it. Awesome. Well. COVID-19, the defining worldwide phenomena of 2020. The novel coronavirus pandemic has affected the entire planet. Hundreds of thousands dead, millions sickened, economies shattered. Travel into the European Union is being severely restricted to contain the spread of the coronavirus. Future generations will wonder, how did the leaders of the time respond? Who stepped up to help? Who made a difference? Shortly after shutting down countries in Europe and Asia, the coronavirus made its way to the United States. With no national plan to combat the virus, state governors had to scramble for solutions. Last hour, the president declared a national emergency. But make no mistake, we have long since passed the moment when we thought we could count on the federal government to lead in the face of this unprecedented situation. Almost overnight, the norms of society came to a halt. By mid-March, New York City became the epicenter of the pandemic. The virus would soon target other large cities. Chicago, Illinois would be hit hard. I have determined that we will close all K-12 schools, public and private. Closing schools and universities was an agonizing decision. I understand the gravity of this action. 
and what it means for every community in our state. However, universities would play a key role in combating the virus. So if you just bring up our volume and yeah, you can leave that small. Or Great. There. Boom. So Got it. Ah, the beauty of this little OBS system, man, it's just it makes managing this stuff so simple. Like yeah, we get through it. So so you uh, we were talking while we were muted here. So you're like <laughs> the some of the like really cool B-roll in that was you as well. Yeah, I shot most of what's in this video. There's a few uh, stock footage shots from like Paris and China. Um, but yeah, the New York footage, the plane footage, um, I shot cause I go there. In fact, I went to New York. I was in New York for my uncle's funeral actually on March, I believe it was March 1st of mm -hmm. this year. And I flew back and, um, that's basically a week later is when they started shutting down New York. You know, in fact, I, they tagged like the first person to have virus was on March 1st. That was the first person that tested. So I kind of was there and got out. And then shortly after that, found out about the work we're doing here. And, um, you know, none of us really expected this thing to blow up into this massive problem that it's become. So anyway, yeah, that's, uh, this was just a labor of love. I mean, I had to shoot a lot. I, I didn't know the story I was going to tell immediately. Mm -hmm. uh, I knew this was the story, but how would I tell it? You know, yeah. where would it be shown? And eventually I had a conversation with Jack Tishner, who you uh, interviewed yeah. some weeks back. Yep. And he's the head of broadcasting service. And I, I had made like a promo reel. And I'm like, do you think there's a place for this on SIU TV? He's like, that's great, Greg. Yep, go for it. <laughs> and so we picked a half hour time slot. Uh -huh. And that really was able to help me focus in on, on the choices. Because when you have a time slot, yeah. you can't exceed it even by one second. So everything had to fit in 26 minutes and 46 seconds. Yeah. And uh, so once I knew that, I had uh, I had to set up a bunch of interviews with the different people in the in the video. Worked with Sam Rhodes, who was on this very stage doing some very funny comedy <laughs> about a year and a half ago. He he was uh, we remained friends, so he was my narrator. And uh, kind of like this interface here, we were I was having him read the script I wrote. He's doing it in his studio in England, and we're Skyping so I can hear him as he's reading it. <laughs> and if I want him to do a different tone of voice uh -huh. or do some emphasis or slow down or speed up, we could just talk about it right there. And he just hit the button. Okay, okay, mate, got it. Do it again. Oh, queued up, ready to go. You know, and we just keep doing the takes, and he had to redo some. I had to redo some rewrites here and there, and it was really fun. And um, Editing, you know, it was a terabyte of data, you know, many hours of footage. Mm -hmm. It's like how to make this really work. Yeah. And it's just you have to, at least for me, some people can really just go through something, make quick decisions. I have to keep looking at it again and again, doing rough edits, doing rough edits, refining, changing my mind. Um, and then I, you just have to kind of beat it until you get it where you want it. Yeah. At least for me. I really wanted this to be a very good product, and I think it's the best thing I've ever done, and I think it's the most important piece of work, mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people will see that, and uh, it's important for, this is what we're doing in little old Carbondale, right? We, yeah. we did something and are doing something to fight the coronavirus. So my work and the mission was to tell that story so others could see that and know that things, really good things are happening here at, at SIU, at Carbondale, and, and the people, made themselves available to do it. 
And my job is to show it. I, you, you, you use the phrase like beat it into submission. That made me think of like dough of like bakery dough, pizza dough, like what, whatever. Like we take dough is you, you make by taking living things, right? Yeast, living organism, bacteria, and we, and we put it into this greater mixture and then we, and then we mix it around and then we beat it up and then bake it and turn it into like sustenance, right? Something and it's, delicious, yeah. It's, there's a very, there's a very like, I don't know, sustenance uh, connection there between you know feeding ourselves with bread and like the bread that media is. I I love that and I love you know just the just this little old Carbondale connection, right? That we filmed Sam Rhodes comedy special. It's streaming in Europe, and that there's still that relationship here that like his voice is coming back. And this isn't the only Carbondale thing that he's done, right? The, the stuff that you guys filmed out in giant city, um, the music that he's made while like at home. Like, I think I, yeah, no, he, he legitimately on some of the virtual shows. I, I, we, we had some of Sam's like Carbondale inspired songs on that. And it's like, it's just really, really cool for that connection to still flourish. Even thousands of miles in an ocean apart right you could maybe do this with him but virtually like so i've thought about what this podcast format looks like um virtually and i'm gonna go ahead and pull this off the screen since we're kind of transitioning out of the the conversation there so um and and i and i think it's it's actually a relatively simple idea that if i can you know if i if i'm going to interview folks that they they have to have equal quality of, of sound capture decent the video doesn't have to be oh my gosh good but black background equal quality of sound capture and halfway decent video that just doesn't have any you know lag lag in its documentation uh and i think i can do this pretty well yeah um yeah. you know and and you know the nice thing about obs being that you know you can literally take a um you know a, a something like a google meet and snap it into frame, capture all of the raw audio, all of the raw video out of that, and it be have a very similar feel to what we create in person here. Right. Um, they would just have to be kind of with the right people that get it, and Sam is one of those yeah. people. Yeah, he can handle it, the technical side, yeah. Um, and and this, is, this is just, this is a really good excuse. Like, him having narrated this is a good excuse to whether it's, like, in a month or whether it's in six months or whatever, like, his continued connection back to here is a good reason to just talk to him. Right. Thanks for that, Greg. Sure. <laughs> oh, that's neat stuff. Um, man. Uh, so I, I, the other thing that I'm kind of interested in, in on that, I mean, so would SIU have developed a really good relationship with the Illinois department of public health then? Like, is that kind of part of how we, you think we got into, uh, awarding Dr. Uh, Ngaze Azike a, uh, degree. I mean, not that that's kind of your department, but I'm like, just wondering, like, you know, I have no knowledge of that, that award. Um, for, so I have no idea of the connection, but mm -hmm. I know that, I mean, for instance, IDPH occupies a building on the SIU campus. Uh -huh. So you'll in the video, this one student, he was a student in the lab making the VTM. Uh -huh. And then he, had got, he, he got hired by the IDPH to test, to do the COVID test. So he would see the, the vials that we created in the lab, the ones he did himself, 
they went out somewhere, someone got tested, the swab went in that vial, uh -huh. and then he's at IDPH doing the actual COVID test <laughs> on, you know, the very same vials. That's wild. So, yeah. So, um, so there was a relationship. They're on our campus. You know, they have a number of locations. Uh -huh. um, I have no idea how that connects to um, someone getting the um, the award that they got. So, no, that's 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 okay. The um, oh, that's that. Wow, to to have been the person who like makes it, runs it out to the field, brings it back, tests it, like has been engaged at every leg of the process. That's the type of person that turns into like a Dr. Anthony Fauci because they've been in on the ground level of this kind of activity. Exactly. Yeah. Ah, and that's a that's another person that we'll look back on in twenty years and be like. That person came from Carbondale. Carbondale's where they made their muster. Like, right. <laughs> uh, oh man, ah, uh, this has just been. This is this is a pretty. This is a lot to take in, Gregory. Like, you, yeah, this I, has been a pretty intense conversation. Yeah, I well, you know, you this. could bring me back next year. You know, we'll do the part two next year, and we'll <laughs> see what's happened. You know, by then. But the I think that's a pretty. I think that's a pretty rich program. I hope yeah. people like it my mom's gonna like it she'll watch it <laughs> my sister might what um what have the what are the have the kids gone off and done anything exciting are they still around here like what do they do they i mean having having the break off of you know a bunch of family back home in new york were they ever like oh dad why aren't we growing up in the city blah 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 or was it just kind of like oh this is okay no they um they've been to new york every single year of their lives uh until this one yeah um and they've got a lot in New York, so they they get to enjoy that. Their mother is German, and actually they're all right now in Germany, in Bavaria, with her. So, um, in fact, my oldest daughter, Camila, or Mila, as she goes by, um, she, go, she attends Illinois State University, uh -huh. but she's doing it this semester virtually in Germany because <laughs> everything's online, so uh -huh. she's doing it from there. Um, but they've all had... Uh, they're all very accomplished. You know, they've been violin concert performers. They've been actors and actresses. Well, I guess they're all actors now. Um, <laughs> uh, Mila is with some startup called Spreck that's started by some other SIU students, yeah. and she's a rep for them. So they're 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 rocking it. Um, and uh, my younger daughters are still in, in they're in high school in Germany, and the oldest one will graduate. And she, she's a fantastic writer. She did a very lengthy highly notated document about the Sherlock Holmes stories, uh -huh. which was beyond most things I could write in an academic level. So it's beautiful to see that. My youngest daughter, they, she just performed this wonderful dance with her friend um, using these streamers. And it was just so beautiful and so well-coordinated. And they just took it on themselves. Yeah. So they all have a very good spirit you know, and they'll they'll go and do what they want and what they like. So, do you feel like you were able to follow in Dad's footsteps? Like he was able to hand things down to you, and you were able to hand things down to them. I hope they got the good stuff. Inherent? You know, uh, <laughs> they, you know, probably too many fart jokes, but um, and and an actual farts. Get, um, <laughs> guilty as charged. Right. So, I mean, listen, if you're right. not a family that's participating in a good round of fart jokes on a regular basis, are you really a family? My vote is no. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It was the real farts that were the problem. So, <laughs> so they, their mother was is uh, quite funny and very, very intelligent. So they get, I think they got a good mix. I have to say so. But they also get our liabilities. You know, we pass on the good and the bad. Yeah. So I'm a bit of a procrastinator, and uh, we'll see. They're 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 <laughs> the next wave, and I hope this planet is is like healthy enough to sustain them.
I, I just I just watched Tenant last night for the first time. Have you have you had a chance to watch it yet? Tenant. Tenant. Have not heard of this one. Uh, so so this is a. Uh, uh, Christopher Nolan, does that sound right? The director. Um, yeah, I know of Christopher Nolan. He did. Uh, he's done quite some, quite a bit of big films. Yeah. Is this uh, a film or is it a series? It is. A, it is a film. Um, it's very much. It's got a very Inception vibe to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know. Did he? Did he? I don't know if he did Inception or not. Um, he might but, have. But um, anyway. Perhaps we should talk about Chris another day because you're with the real director here. Oh, oh I'm, I'm, so, so, like, I'm so sorry. Don't want to. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Uh, so uh, one of the things that, that Jack talked about that, that really interests me, and I'm glad you brought Jack up a, a little bit, uh, there was uh, how SIU's communication department and broadcast activity is a vision that goes back to like the 1940s and Delight Morris coming in and being like, you know, how, how do we obtain these licenses and build out this infrastructure and do this like early on in a burgeoning industry? Um, you know, and I'm, and I'm curious to see if the comm department now is, as you know, it's kind of the first big pledge on Illinois kind of reinvestment in higher education. Like that's, that's the part of campus that gets the attention is that building, um, you know, those programs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and if this is kind of like that that next claiming of stake, like, okay, cool, we were there at the start on broadcast, broadcast. Are we going to be there at the start of, like, the real turnover and evolution of digital media? Hmm. Um, yeah, it's just kind of a broad thought. I don't know. That's not really a question. Yeah, I, <laughs> it's, uh, it remains to be seen. It's uh, There's the broadcasting service, which is a PBS affiliate, and then there's also the, which is actually completely separate now, from what I understand, from the TV and radio digital media program that's Mm -hmm. an academic program and a a college. So, uh, but of course, the students who are in the college work for the station, et cetera, but we'll see how it develops. I mean, it's it's kind of a new wild west of media, right? Everything is, um, uh, HBO Max just announced that they're going to, Every film they make for 2021 would be a simultaneous release on on uh, streaming and mm-hmm. in the theaters. And the movie theaters are outraged about this because they used to have at least a window mm-hmm. of uh, uh, weeks or a couple of months. Anyway, so things. Who knows what's going to happen? And hopefully, we we our media program here can be uh, in the right place and do the right things. Um, have you? Uh, have, so. Uh, Another person we've, we've had on uh, John Pollitz, and he's talked about you know all the different activity at at the University Museum and and the library, but you know what they're doing out of SIU Press. Uh, is there any crossover between kind of some of the video activity that you're doing and and kind of what they may be doing there with in in the world of sound and podcasting and wherever they're, they're well, headed? I, or um, I did a short video of uh, there's this other guy Pinkney Benedict who's mm-hmm. like the podcasting guy at in the English department. Uh-huh. So I did a short video about his work in podcasting and virtual reality. Mm-hmm. And I was just contacted by the, um, I guess he's the curator at the University Museum. You uh-huh. had him on the show, I believe. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, 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 wow. Weston. Thank you. Yes. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> so Weston contacted me because he wants to, because they can't have uh, normal art openings. They were thinking of doing uh, interviews with the artists where we can go through the gallery and they could talk about the work that's mm-hmm. in the show. So he's going to get back to me on that. So I'll probably be doing some video around that um, for the University Museum. Oh, that's phenomenal. So, yeah, so it's um, 
just everything has got to run through these cameras now. It's just it's just how it is, and it's not looking like that's going to change that soon. Yeah. Well, and it's the I started using this phrase a couple of years ago when I when I talked to a group of um, college students who were all in different segments of the university. One was pre-med, one person was Africana studies, one person was like marketing and business. And it's like their whole thing was creating news and like creating videos and creating things. It's like, that's, that's it. It doesn't matter what the primary function that you're performing is. Like they're, they're the intersection between you and everybody else in this world is always going to be from here on out and forever media. You know, whether that's whether that's on the go media, because we think about it this way, right? We we talk into our phones, we FaceTime. What are we doing when we're FaceTime? That's not a, a phone call, that's a video call. We're having a one-on-one closed link television conversation with each other. And that's that's just normalcy now. Yeah, that was Star Trek in the sixties and now it's it's here. All those sci-fi movies, it's like <laughs> it's happening now. This is we're living it. You know, we have our communicators, right? Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> where's all the other cool stuff? Where's the where's the Jetson, the Jetson food cube? Oh, don't worry. When food scarcity comes into play here soon enough, that we'll we'll get there. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> oh my gosh! All right, cool. That's that's exactly the the lighthearted note we're going to end on. <laughs> uh, episode thirty three of the WTF Carbondale podcast. Uh, Gregory Wint. Um, just absolutely phenomenal story, um, not just because of his own story, but because his ability to then in turn tell stories. Uh, and I'm appreciative to have shared the space with him uh, both now and in other ways. And I'm sure we'll do other things in the future. And I hope you've enjoyed this kind of differentiation from uh, from the typical format where we spliced in some media uh, and kind of kind of went through some cool stuff like that. It was just uh, feels like we're growing. Feels like we're growing, and I'm appreciative uh, of, of growing with Greg. And, uh, yeah, I guess uh, always with the sign-off, have a good one, whatever that one may be.